ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Let's wrap the week here on Hard to Paint with David Grubb by welcoming back one of my favorite guests, uh, the one and only Daniel Lust, uh, sports attorney, uh, one of the best in the country at what he does, and um, has just given us some great information ever since this was a radio program. So, Dan, welcome back. It's good to talk to you again. Dave, good to talk to you as well. We'll say that uh, sirens, alarm bells, whistles at the corner of uh, sports and law have been blowing up. So I, I expected a call from you and I'm, I'm always happy to join you. It's been an incredible week. Um, and we had talked about this a few uh, months ago, just about how, you know, this, this is historic. This is rare that the NCA finds itself at the, the, the Supreme Court, where anyone goes to the Supreme Court, um, let alone an institution like the NCAA. And with arguments in NCAA versus Alston um, starting this week, it seems out of the gate that the Supreme Court has some very pointed questions for the NCAA. Um, did you expect the court to be this aggressive in their approach coming out um, and looking at the NCAA this way? Uh, and, and just how do you think it's gone so far? So I guess we can go behind baseball for a minute. Um, you know, I, this, this is probably, if, if anybody watched the live oral arguments, they're not usually this accessible. I know, you know, there haven't really been that many sports cases that have uh, gone to the Supreme Court that people, and even if there were, right, I don't know if anybody's watching them. Um, but because of the pandemic, they put this on C-SPAN. They put it live on radio. You know, the last time, I mean, I, I don't know what when they started to do this. I know it was, pre, you know, during the pandemic, but this was, this was live appointment viewing. People were able to see live what was going on. Usually the way they have it is that, you know, there's a couple reporters that are there and they'll try mm -hmm. to provide a rough transcript of what was available. So, you know, to the, the reason I, I'm kind of going there, this was uh, maybe I, I didn't really expect this. It was almost like a, a public shaming of the NCAA. It really like left them out to dry. And, you know, uh, I don't know how many people were, were tuned in. I imagine uh, a couple hundred thousand, if not in the, in the millions of people, probably not that many. We'll say we'll say in the high thousands. Um, but yeah, they, they really laid the NC out to dry, uh, and people like, uh, get to see, um, you know, like there was a point, Dave, and I know I was, was tweeting about it, but the NCA lawyer guy by the name of Seth Waxman improperly called justice Thomas, the chief judge, and the whole bench kind of laughed at him. Maybe you were laughing with him and he goes, there's no opening. So it, it didn't really make the NCA look that good. If you're forgetting the judge's name, because you're so baffled and flustered as to what's going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the question, I think it came from Justice Gorsuch, which was the one uh, we've all been kind of curious about. It's like the NCAA makes billions of dollars and you're fighting athletes over the reimbursements of laptops and awards, you know, cash based awards that students could get, you know, at the end of the year and what jobs they could get. You know, why are you fighting them over these minutia if you guys are making billions off of them? And uh there's no easy answer. There's no, no easy answer at all. The NCAA keeps saying what they're saying. that We need these rules in place to protect amateurism. Um, and they keep saying that we need to protect amateurism to protect and save college sports. But I, I don't really know anybody in my circles that buys that argument. So, yeah, uh, is, I mean, we'll see what the result is going to be. I think that's a separate question. Um, 
But, uh, yeah, I, I didn't really expect them to just go to town on the NCAA. They just laid into them, one, one judge after the other. Guys that no, normally don't even speak uh, spoke right. up and, and put a dagger in the NCAA. It was, I really didn't expect that. No, we went, we went like a decade between Clarence Thomas asking questions in open court <laughs> on the Supreme Court bench. And like you said, it's not just him, and it's not just conservatives, and it's not just the left of the court. It's across the board where they've been getting these very targeted um, um, questions, and some are almost rhetorical in nature because they know, it seems as if the justices know in their minds, there's no good answer for this, uh, for some of the things that they're talking about, especially when they brought up the exploding amounts of coaches' pay, when they brought up um, the facilities wars, and all these things that they say, you know, and, and, and they pointed out, well, why are these all these other levels of sports able to support multiple uh, sport of sports, the Olympic sports, the non-revenue so-called sports, and have fully fleshed out athletic departments? But this, these giant schools are saying they can't do it if they're not allowed to hold on to these very, as the court in, in some cases said, also, said as well, archaic rules that were developed a century ago. And is the ultimate problem here is that if the NCAA – wants to be the pe- the group that both defines and protects amateurism in the, in a world of antitrust law. It's, 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 it's almost as if they're trying to position themselves to be judge during executioner and the court is saying you can't do all those things. Yes. I mean, the, the court is really, and, and to, <laughs> I mean, Dave, we'd be remiss if I, I mean, I have to bring it up. Justice Thomas, uh, there's a, there's a thing in the, in the law, that there's something called dicta. If a judge says something, it's not really part of the opinion, but a judge says it at a point in time. That's like pseudo, it's not real law, but it's like pseudo law. It doesn't it just say, hey, the judge said this at one point. It's not controlling. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know what I'm about to say, Dave, before I tell you? I think so. Do you know what I'm ahead. about to say? I think so. We're great. Uh, Justice Thomas said there are, there are three great college programs in the country. He said the Ohio State University. He said Alabama. And then he said Nebraska, which, as you know, Dave, is, is my, is, I'm almost like the, the sixth party candidate in Nebraska. You I have are. a lot of friends in Nebraska. I got about 20 DMs that I should post something about it. And, uh, you know, I was trying to listen and live tweet, but I have to, you know, I'm a man of the people. So I, I quoted that and I said, is it, this is now the law of the land. There are three great college programs in the country. Alabama, Ohio State, <laughs> Ohio State, and Nebraska, number three. I mean, that's, that's everybody knows that. And now it's confirmed by uh, one of the judges. So, um, yeah, I, I, as, on a more of a serious note, yeah, they, they're calling, you know, th- this is an antitrust case. And in the, in the antitrust cases, that's, that's only going to come up when the NCAA had, or, or an entity, it, be it the NCAA, be it, you know, AT&T, any type of alleged monopoly, um, they have too much control. And they are, uh, you know, you heard the questions. It's like, this seems to be you, like that you have too much control over these athletes. If the schools can't even have something to say, right, they can't even compete. Like, hey, let's say school A. Uh, wants to reimburse for laptops and they don't want to put a cap on, uh, you know, what type of jobs you can get. That's a form of competition. Let's say another school wanted to do that, um, but they're not allowed to. So it's, you know, they're, they're alleging, hey, the NCAA, you're kind of conspiring with your member schools to not give the athletes the best possible scenario. So judge, jury, executioner, you know, uh, monopoly, these are the same, same type of concepts. And the NCAA's lawyer, like he's, I don't know, you know, he's got, kind of got thrown to the wolves because no one really believes that. No one believes that opinion. Um, I don't want to say no one, but whenever I put up a poll and I ask, like, you know, at one point, Justice Sotomayor said, uh, 
you know, will, will, and she said it to Jeffrey Kessler, who's a pronounced sports attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, she asked him, he's defending Austin, you know, defending the player side. She goes, um, and there were really two, two interesting questions, but, but she said, number one, if we pay, you know, if we pay athletes and schools are given the ability to pay athletes, what, wouldn't that ruin the transfer portal, right? Wouldn't all the athletes just go to the best schools, right? That were paying the most money. And he didn't really have a good answer to it. Um, you know, and the other one is like, you know, if you pay college athletes, like, doesn't that just, no one's going to watch college football. Wouldn't that ruin college sports? And, you know, I, I, I didn't mean, you know, I don't want to say it's all the judges and maybe that's just, those are just academic questions. And maybe the judges don't believe these forms of the questions. The ju- Obviously they hit, they hit, they hit the, uh, you know, the Austin side decently hard. I yes, think it was, did. yeah, it was harder on the NCAA side, just objectively. But I, I put up these polls and I say, you know, will you stop watching college sports if athletes receive compensation? And these are regularly 90%. I will still watch college sports. So, it's not like it's a majority that, that loves amateurism. You know, I think some, some people, I get it, you know, once in a while, like, Hey, they should have, you know, free ride is enough. And the free scholarships enough, but that's the super, super minority opinion in our country. So I, I think it's a good sign. And they're, they're kind of playing to public sentiment that they wanted to show, Hey, we're going to put some, some, uh, even if, you know, NCAA wins, we're going to put some really harsh language in here. Uh, I, I, I expect that. I expect that at minimum, there's going to be some really harsh, and smoldering language at the NCAA level. I, I think it was Justice uh, Elena Kagan that said that um, uh, she was talking specifically, I believe, about the NCAA going back on cases it's lost. And we talked about this before, relying on the Oklahoma case and trying to apply cases that they've lost and that they've continued to lose over the years. I think they're 0 for 4 um, in court cases like this. And that each time the NCAA has survived. That every time that they said that if you change this law, we're not going to make it. They've made it and they've thrived and they've continued to make money. And I think it's so it's it, again, they've it, they've made this argument. They've tried to go back. And this was something that we discussed previously too. go back to this Oklahoma decision on television and say, now you should be using this to help us. Well, the record, the track record has shown that you have thrived. Look where you are now positionally. It's just it's a really hard thing for the NCAA to say that the only reason that they prosper is because of them creating this this system of amateurism and defining it for themselves and for the players when all the stuff around them continues to grow in opposition to that. It's, it's such a good point and it it can't be understated. You know, the, the board of regents case, that's the Oklahoma case in the eighties. They said, you know, and I, we've, I think you and I have gone over the precedent, mm-hmm. but, you know, for those that, that didn't listen to our, our previous episode, the NCAA had a monopoly on television contracts. And they said, we're going to have the highlight Saturday game. We get to pick the games. And, you know, you could, there's only maybe once or twice a year where your team had a national game. So if you lived out of market, this was like pre-streaming, pre-all this stuff. You couldn't watch your, your team. There was no Big Ten network, no Pac-12 network, no nothing. So the College Football Association was an entity created by Oklahoma, Georgia, some of the top teams in college football. And they basically said, we don't agree with how the NCAA has a monopoly over television contracts. We should be able to control where our games are. So they created a separate entity, the CFA, the College Football Association. And they started negotiating with big, big, big TV networks, NBC, ABC, CBS. And they were basically going into direct competition with the remaining schools of the NCAA that lagged behind, that didn't want to, uh, you know, uh, rock the boat. So 
the NCA's position in this Board of Regents case, the case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, was if you allow these, you know, different, different television deals, it'll ruin everything. Life will be over. NCA will be ruined. Guess what, Dave? It did the exact bleeping opposite. Exact bleeping opposite. It, it helped college football expand into a juggernaut, a behemoth with million, billion dollar television contracts. And that's the college football that we know today. That's college game day. That's people you know, online having millions of college football followers. I mean, that's, that's the world that we know. That's you know, um, college football playoff. I mean, I, there, there's no more rapid base in college sports than college football fans. I mean, March Madness you know, gets obviously a lot of traction, but there's no passion, more passion than you see in college football fans. So, yeah, I, I mean, the NCAA could have been their own worst enemy. And I think here, you know, just to, to come full circle, if the NCAA were to win this case and, uh, you know, well, let's say uh, maybe it's not winning this case. This case is a, it's a pretty minute issue of reimbursement. It's not that big of a deal. But if somehow they could put a nail in the coffin and get an antitrust exemption, which the, the judges, I think you, you and I didn't go over this last time, but the, the actually the, the Supreme the NCA's position was not that they wanted an antitrust exemption. Mm-hmm. We, many thought that they were going to put that in their briefs, but they're actually just asking for it. Uh, and they're basically saying, we, we didn't violate antitrust law, so we don't need an antitrust exemption. We don't need protection. We didn't do anything wrong. Now, if they were to get an antitrust exemption, you know, maybe the judges put that in to respond. That's just a fancy way of saying the judges do it on their own. I think that would really hurt the NCA. I think these entities like that overtime basketball league, I think, you know, routes like LaMelo Ball took, RJ Hampton took to go overseas. I think athletes would just be like, okay, let me just go get paid as a high school senior through the overtime basketball league. Let me get paid a hundred grand. And then, you know what, if I don't feel like my body's physically ready for the rigors of being an NFL or NBA vet, let me go pull a mellow ball. Let me go hang out in Sydney, Australia, by the beach, get paid another couple hundred grand. And, and then let me go to the pros when I'm ready, when I'm a seasoned vet and I'm a top draft pick, I'll get a big signing bonus. You don't have to go to the college. So I think, you know, the NCA, maybe again, their own worst enemy, if they would have won the television case. There would be no college football wouldn't be what we know it is today. And then if they would have won this case and they win this argument and they get another victory for amateurism, guys would be like, okay, maybe I don't want to be an amateur. I'll be a pro a year sooner and, and I don't have to wait for the NCAA to figure it out. So yeah, to your point, I think, I think the NCAA is a little bit tone deaf at this point. I don't, I don't even think they know what's best for them. Do you think that, uh, are you surprised that the makeup of the court hasn't had more of an influence on how they questioned these things? You know, this is typically, this is a conservative majority court, one that over the last few decades has generally ruled in the favor of, of large entities and against labor. Um, and this is not a, a labor case specifically, but it does have those types of ramifications. Um, like I, I was, I was surprised, honestly. Like not just by the tone, but from where things were coming from. Um, I mean, was I surprised? I mean, like you know, I I wasn't really sure what to expect because we haven't, we really haven't had college sports at that level in, in legitimately thirty-seven years. So I, you know, we, you know, I know you and I have spoke about this. Like on the college sports level, it's like. Paying college athletes is a bipartisan issue. So mm-hmm. I've seen it. We saw it in the California legislature. We're seeing it in every state, seeing it at the federal level. You know, both, both Democrats and Republicans want to pay college athletes. So, uh, you know, I don't, it doesn't shock me that everyone seems to be in support of it. And I think, you know, uh, the one thing that I think people should be mindful of, the U.S. Solicitor General was involved in this case. And people were wondering who, who Elizabeth Prelegar was, why she was involved. Um, I'll put it bluntly. 
Nobody thought she was going to get involved. It is kind of odd that, that the U.S. Solicitor General is involved in this case. They usually take the position of defending the federal government, not always, but more often than not. And they'll give oral argument on behalf of the federal government's position if, if there's a case that goes to the Supreme Court. Elizabeth Trelegar is maybe someone that's destined for uh, even, if you could imagine, even bigger things, uh, knowing knowing that role. Um, but she, they filed a, you know, filed a brief and they asked to be give oral argument on behalf of the players, not on behalf of the NCA, which is not a federal institution, but like maybe close, more closely aligned with a federal institution that, that we're accustomed to. And yeah, she goes, I want to defend, I want to speak on behalf of the players. I want to be, I want to speak on behalf of West Virginia running back, Sean Alston. So that tells you a lot. That tells you that, Hey, there's a federal, federal players in here that are in support of the players. And that's maybe the same argument. Hey, the judiciary is in support of the players. And, and what is this all leaning towards? It's like, okay, who's got to get their act together? There's one, one branch of the U.S. government that's got to get their act together. And that's the, the legislator. If they can figure out a federal name image like this bill, all these issues that we have, they're kind of uh, they're not big deals anymore. But Florida's name image and likeness, but Oregon, all these random states, a potential injunction filed by the NCA against Florida, you know, the decision on Alston. None of that matters if the federal federal law is passed in image and likeness. So I think it's everybody giving a nod and a wink. Hey, guys, guys in, in, in uh, Washington, it doesn't matter whose bill it is. It doesn't matter if it's Bill A, Bill C, Bill, Bill Q. Just figure it out. We don't care whose name is on it. Just get something passed. Does that it, – it, it also just makes me wonder – because the NCAA keeps saying, you know, if you do this, there's the slippery slope argument. And then what are, you know, these people are going to be doing these things. But we know now the slippery slope is there. It just isn't talked about. The payments are going on. They aren't being talked about because the NCAA is, has an infractions committee for specifically those reasons. So this arms race of what programs are doing and how they're spending money and all these things and what could be cut. Well, the cuts are happening. The all the things the NCAA says it's worried about started before this, before the licensing uh, issue became uh, to the forefront. So it just seems as, as if the NCAA continues to stay behind the curve when in its best interest, and this is more of a PR question, I guess, and a survival question, and its best interest is to how do you work with these people who are pushing for change to make sure that you're on board with it and not left behind by it? So I, I have a, maybe I'm going to give you a wild card here with the response I'm going to give you. I, so Dave, you know, I have my, my podcast, Conduct Detrimental, mm -hmm. and uh, I reach out to, uh, you know, especially with what's all that's going on in the sports world realm. I, there's a lot of, and all these questions, they're not, they're, I don't think that all the questions that and everything that you and I know, I don't think anybody really knows how this is going to shake out on the NCAA level. So, and even after I watched the Alston and I'm, you know, the Alston oral arguments, you know, Florida name, image, and likeness kind of affect July 1st, like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like people keep asking me and I'm, you know, uh, I, uh, I like to say like, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. I don't think anyone knows this answer. So what did I do, Dave? I went on LinkedIn uh, and I just looked, you know, I have, I have, uh, I know I'm a professional. I have my Twitter, but, but I, I keep my LinkedIn all nice and buttoned up. I don't post assault videos. I don't post assumption of the risk stuff. Very, very uh, prim and proper on LinkedIn. And uh, I, I knew that a, a commissioner of the MAC conference, M-A-M, M-A-A-C, not the M-A-C, that he had followed me a couple months back. And I said, uh, Rich, you know, Rich Enzor, a lawyer, he went to Seton Hall Law School, you know, seemingly like a stand-up guy. Can you come on my podcast and answer these questions? Because I'd just like to see how this is going to work out. So he pretty candidly uh, 
how do I phrase this? He he threw some haymakers at Mark Emmer. He he did not hold back at Mark Emmer. And this is a commissioner of a Division One basketball Division One conference. You, the Iona, right? They have Rick Pitino, Quinnipiac, the big hockey school. Uh, you know, Monmouth. There's some big schools, and yeah. he 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 went to town on Mark Emmett and probably said some things he shouldn't have said. And then I'm like, I asked him, like, is it okay that I, if I use this audio? And he goes, yes. And then the Mac official Twitter account tweeted it out. So I'm like, there seems to be some dissension between what the commissioners want and what Mark Emmert wants. That's the only way to read his comments. So yeah, I, I, I think the frustration uh, in the public sentiment is shared by the commissioners. I think it's, I, I think there is a fracturing going on behind the scenes that at some point, someone is telling the NCAA lawyers what to do. Someone is telling the NCAA lawyers to appeal this to the Supreme Court and, and throwing the lawyer to the wolves and maybe making that lawyer look very embarrassed and look very stupid with an archaic and ancient argument. And behind the scenes, there are power players like, like Rich Ensor, like Val Ackerman with the Big East that are, not, that are not comfortable with these arguments that are being made, that are not comfortable with the women's NCAA bubble being a shell of what the men's is. And um, I don't know what else to, to tell you that there, there is some dissension behind the scenes. And, and the podcast I just recorded yesterday, um, it was very apparent that he got a green light from someone to do this. And if he did not, uh, someone someone is getting into a fight behind the scenes. And he's he said he wanted me to plug it everywhere. So, Dave, I'm plugging it here, too. Well, I'd, I'd Rich, Ens- to Rich, to that one. Rich Ensor throwing, throwing haymakers, haymakers. Mark Emmert may be, at this point, the most vilified commissioner of, of some type um, um, in sports, and he's just had bad weeks. I mean, like every one of these issues, his response has just made it the, the public image of it worse. And you talk about specifically with the way things are going with the women's basketball tournament, um, how it was treated both on social media, um, the, their physical facilities, their food, their, all those things that were so stark and, and different, but also there are increasing Title IX challenges coming up against the NCAA as well. Mark Emmert is taking it from all fronts at this point. It doesn't seem to me like he can survive this. Like either he's being set up by other folks, because like you said, if there's this division, maybe he's being pushed to, to be the fall for this. Um, because he has to be work taking his guidance from somewhere as well. He didn't just get this job on his own. So there are certainly people he answers to. And maybe this is an opportunity to clean a lot of folks out who have been holding the NCAA back um, from becoming a modern organization. So um, again, I, I can't, I don't, right. I don't have anything behind the scenes other than that. I, I, when I asked Richard to come on the podcast before I did that, I went through his, his, his versions of retweets are called reshares. And he was sharing a, an alarming amount of articles talking about the NCAA's uh, incompetence. There might be an exodus from the NCAA about high level people. And I'm like, if a commissioner of a high-level conference is doing that, now nah, that tells you a lot. And, and he's very public. He's very outspoken. So, and he's been with the conference. Well, actually, you'll you'll like this, Dave. I did not know this. He's the longest tenured Division One commissioner uh, in in college. This guy, Rich Enzer, he's been with the with the MAC for 30, 30 years. It started in August of '88. And Dave, I was born in July of '88. So he has been the commissioner all but one month of my existence on Earth. So that tells you how much this guy knows. And uh, he, he seems he's the most senior guy in the room in these conversations. And that's the guy that's bashing Mark Emmert. So uh, d- drop that little nugget for you there. Rich Ensor on LinkedIn, for those that are on there, he is quite a follow. Just 
throwing haymakers to his about thousand. He doesn't have that many followers there, but he's just throwing haymakers for whoever's listening. I had a great conversation um, with a young lady, uh, Brittany Collins, who uh, plays for played for UMass tennis. And like her case dovetails within this perfectly is that they had their title stripped because of roughly $500 in uh, improperly allocated phone jack money. Ah, ah, I know this case. Yes. So, you know, she's trying to get her uh, university's tennis title restored. They won an athletic 10 conference channel and all of her records were, you know, removed for her three years of college, over $500 uh, of payment for a phone jack um, that she didn't have, um, that she didn't use because she's, this is the year 2021 and people have been using cell phones as their personal phones for a decade now. Um, so it's just, it just, it feels as if this is an unprecedented time. And it's, it's, it's so much, we, we can say that in so many ways in our country right now, but in particularly in sports law, how this, like you said, it's been this, this kind of a nexus where sports law is infiltrating these things that we're seeing in the broader society. So, that's been really interesting for me to watch is as these other movements are going on parallel to what's going on to sports, these things are happening in real time in the sports world as well. Uh, I'll give you one other, one other nugget. Cause I know you you're into this uh, in this world. And, and I know you and I spoke about it back way back when I, uh, I gave you a hypothetical, uh, maybe a couple months, maybe it was in a year ago, Dave, when you and I started talking regularly, yeah. um, maybe, maybe, maybe about a year ago. So I, I have a daughter who she's now 16 months, uh, 16 months old. And uh, I know you have a daughter. How old, how old is your daughter, Dave? 12. Okay. So your daughter is much closer to uh, playing for UConn women's basketball than mine. Mine's got a couple, couple more years. Um, I, I gave a hypothetical in as many, many places as I, as I could. But, you know, at a certain point, let's say uh, our daughters were high school seniors and they were promised playing time, uh, at, you know, as freshmen. Um, and we, we had a world that we, no one could have ever expected. But where eligibility, additional years of eligibility were, were granted across any number of sports. Um, now that that uh, you know, it seemed like a good thing at the time because a lot of sports were canceled. The the uh, the issue or uh, something that no one I don't I don't think picked up on the significance. High school seniors were graduating and going into college, mm-hmm. and that playing time didn't work itself out. We now have uh, the, the transfer portal allows people to switch schools without sitting out a year. So you have these two. Separate issues, but now similar that are kind of happening. So additional eligibility extended. So rosters are loaded, right? Loaded with talent they shouldn't otherwise have been. And now you have a mass exodus. I think there's like uh, over a thousand athletes that are in the transfer portal. So I asked Rich Edsor, I go, what is, are these two things related that people are just unhappy with their playing time and, and they're unhappy with co- promises that coaches broke because of playing time. And he goes, yes. And he goes, he goes, essentially, I, we don't, we don't know what the shakeout's going to be. Um, but this is unprecedented in college sports, the amount of transfers, the amount of people in the college portal. So as much as we were doing athletes a favor, and I, and I supported it 100% that we should give athletes additional eligibility, something was going to happen, yep. and it's happening right now. So, yeah, uh, I, I will say if, you're, if your team last year had a, a very solid performance at any type of level, um, let's just t- take a closer look at that roster before you go ahead and bet those futures because there's going to be a lot, a lot of roster turnover. Yeah, I, I covered you – know, I did a – color commentary for Tulane women's basketball and they had the unanimous American athletic conference freshman of the year and she transferred, you know, season ended, she's gone. And she got everything that playing time wise, 
But now, like you said, because the minutes are so dispersed, because players are coming back or moving on to other schools that are giving them opportunities, these bigger programs now all of a sudden have lots of either have lots of roster space or, or you saw like a team like Michigan that had a guy who transferred from Wake Forest, my other, my alma mater and went to Michigan, my favorite school, and then helps them get to the elite eight um, just on the basis of, of having that opportunity. So yeah, it, it, there are these immediate um, impacts, but we won't know for years down the road because it will influence guys who normally would have been backups at an Ohio state or a Nebraska will now be starters at some other school because they that extra year was given to someone else. So it's, it is going to have a dramatic impact on competition, on people's jobs, um, all types of things. Yeah, um, you know, in, in that there was also the issue of international players coming back and playing. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I, and I get why they extended eligibility, and I think it was a good thing. But, you know, Dave, I, I imagine that you were a Michigan fan because of the Fab Five. I'm just going to throw that out there. Probably. No, well, I was born in Michigan, so we all, well, it goes all the way back. So it was that's a household. Okay, okay. It was a house. So yes. that, that's fair. I, I have a lot of friends that are Michigan fans because of the Fab Five. Same same the reason that they're Dallas Cowboys fans or any any number of fans uh, that have a big school. But, you know, uh, you can imagine, right, if a school wins a national championship based off of one of these weird players coming through mm-hmm. the transfer portal, that will irreparably change that the landscape of that sport. Zion Williamson made Duke cool, right? Like, I mean, that's just the nature of it. You know, Michael Jordan made North Carolina cool. So... We'll see. We'll see what, what comes of it. But yeah, I, I think it's it goes without saying that uh, the the ramifications of that COVID loss season um, are, are going to be felt for for years, if not decades. Decades. I wanted to ask you about something quickly before I transition to something else. Um, here, something that hits close to home is Ed Orgeron and what's the fallout of his the Les Miles era and Les Miles losing his job at Kansas, and then now. Um, with the report that came out about how much LSU did not do in response to sexual assault allegations and things on campus. I just want to get your impression because I know you're not, maybe not be deeply familiar with this case, but earlier this week, there was a report and it was verified that um, a 70 year old worker um, at the Superdome in in New Orleans was accosted by Darius Geis, a former running back at LSU. Um, She called the LSU offices and says that she received a call back from Ed Orgeron saying, can you accept this kid's apology? Orgeron this week said, I don't remember making the call. I don't remember the woman. Uh, I hope everything works out, but, but that's all I can say for now. A very well you know, crafted statement um, in typical, I, I'm obviously cutting it short, but it feels again, if you're LSU, You've dealt with this issue where, where Miles is, attra- is less Miles is attached to this stuff. Orgeron, these go through his players as well. You have a coach who is directly being implicated as making contact with a, an alleged victim. And all of these things as, from a perception wise, is there a potential then for a school like LSU to have a lack of institutional control um, charge brought against them by the NCAA? I mean, uh, the short answer is yes. Um, you know, I, I had a chance to see at least portions of, uh, of uh, the testimony of the, uh, of the uh, you know, of the, uh, we'll say, alleged victim or accuser, whatever, whatever term you wanted to use. Um, it's very messy. Um, you and I didn't speak about it, but obviously uh, the less miles allegations uh, were, were uh, very loud. There were two separate uh, investigations that were performed into LSU, um, you know, uh, Les Miles lost his job. 
I think there's a, uh, I think the AD for LSU, did he go to Oregon State? Am I remembering that? No, the AD who's there now, Scott Woodard, Woodard is a LSU alum. The previous one was not. Uh, uh, I'm not from it. Our current, the current is, is an LSU guy. There's, yeah, I mean, it's just, there's people's heads that are rolling on a number of levels. And mm-hmm. Coach O, we had this conversation a year ago, uh, you know, it's got a, 100% approval rating, and now the program's kind of in shambles all of a sudden. Um, so uh, I think you would be uh, – you'd have your head in the sand if you didn't think that that was a possibility. Um, Coach O, I know, has been called to testify in, in that mm-hmm. case. Um, and there's no – there is no scenario where he comes out looking good. That's like when the baseball players got called to testify on Capitol Hill uh, for the steroids trial back in the day. There was no scenario where Mark McGuire or Rafael Palmeiro, Sammy Sosa, they were going to come out looking good. So, um, yeah, uh, this is, I mean, we'll see what comes of any other dominoes fall after Coach O, but this is not looking good. It's not looking good that Coach O uh, is attached to this, that this happened under his watch, that he's being alleged to have been involved in it. Um, I don't think this, uh, this woman has any uh, motivation of, of lying, especially knowing Coach O's stature in the community. Um, so, and the fact that his voice is pretty distinct. If he Pretty calls you, you're not going to really forget. <laughs> like, it's hard to say, well, that wasn't me. You, you heard someone else from the office. See, can I, I'm going to ask you this. And you, <laughs> I, I don't know this, okay? Are there other people that speak like him? Or is that just him? No, no. I don't know. Because I've heard he, like, he speaks like he's from the bayou. And like I've been to New Orleans like three four times. I've never heard a human being talk like that. No, I, I don't is, know people who speak like him. And I have friends is, whose parents are full-blooded, deep Acadiana Cajuns, and they have their Acadiana accent, but no one, no one talks like Coach O. There's, is, like, is, is, is it a combination of, like, smoker's lung and, like, uh, by, by you? I, I don't know. I've never heard a human talk like that. No, like, it's me either. It's it's like he's – it's it's a perfect voice, though. I mean, it's, it's a great coach's voice, um, but it's not – yeah, it's – it's actually, you know, like it's actually a bet. It's a better voice for a grizzly bear. I don't know if it's a perfect coach's voice, but but some type of animal with a visceral voice. Yeah, you know, folks like to compare him to Farmer Fran from uh, the Water Boy, but it's like hey, it's, it's exactly. not exactly. It's not even that. It's it's even different than that because you can you you understand like people act like they don't understand what Orgeron is saying and they have to put subtitles. No, you get it. It's just you've never heard anyone speak like that. <laughs> That's the part that makes it disorienting. You know what he's saying. I've never misunderstood him. It's just that human beings don't speak that way. I, I've never the, heard that sound. The, the farmer friend, um, I, I, I heard that a while ago, but you just reminded me. Yes, it is a very close farmer friend comparison. Almost, almost as if Coach O. Oh, side note, Dave, because I, I know you like this intersection of wrestling. Coach O is in the new rock show. There's an actor that portrays Coach O. That's right. That's right, because he was a, the D-line coach at University of Miami at the, the time. The, there's, there's the show The Young Rock, which, uh, you know, I'm a uh, – uh, now, now I'm, I used to be a closet wrestling fan. Now I'm just out. But, you know, the coach, Coach O was at Miami and when The Rock was there, and there was an actor. They, they give you a wink and a nod. That is Coach O. He does a terrible impression of the voice, but, but Coach O did make it into the show. The first – I think it's within the first two episodes. Yeah, and I remember the only acting I think he had done was in um, The Blind Side where he played himself, um, which was funny because it came after he had gotten fired from the University of Mississippi and he had to play himself as the head coach of Mississippi. So that was that was nice. Um, moving on into another football related case is the case of Deshaun Watson in Houston. And this is bizarre, beyond bizarre. It just continues to become something that I have no idea what it is that I am watching. 
because it doesn't feel like a sexual assault case. And yet it is a sexual assault. Suppose, you know, that's what we're alleging here. That's what Tony um, Busby is alleging is that and these 21 now individuals who have filed civil suits, but the way it's been litigated in through Instagram, the way the, the, the inconsistencies in how the facts have been reported, either involving the Houston Police Department or not involving the Houston, Houston Police Department. The strange affidavit that Rusty Harden had, the letter of with 18 women defending Deshaun Watson. I'm perplexed by so many things here that I'm not really, I don't really know where to begin. So can you help me make sense of any of this? Um, I'm going to do something different that I don't, uh, and Dave, as you know, I'm, I'm going on shows across the country, explaining mm -hmm. to people the difference of civil law, criminal law, the NFL standard, but we, we're going to start because I, I like to have fun with you, Dave. We're going to start on the top three weirdest things about this case. Okay. 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 No, number one, number one, and I'm just going to put it out there. I'm not going to tell you how I feel, but this is just, this is strange. Um, there, there are 20, at least 24 alleged accusers of Deshaun Watson that are all some either massage therapists. They're alleging that they were somehow worked in a spa and they're alleging that Deshaun asked them to do their first massage. So they're, they're all in that same category of they gave him a massage. Okay, 24 individuals accused him of, and of doing something wrong. Okay. Now, the, the statement that you just identified, Rusty Harden is now his, uh, his ace in the hole, I guess. I guess if you call this an ace in the hole. Hey, we have 18 people on our side that say that, that he gave massages and nothing bad happened. So there are, and he's basically saying, we have 43 masseuses and half of them are good and half of them are bad. So we don't even know what it is. Okay, that's num number one, which is strange. Why is Deshaun Watson getting 40 plus massages with different masseuses? Who he, does he, that? Who does that, right? And then maybe we'll say point A and point B. I, I don't know if it's like, hey, here are these, you know, um, the Jeffrey Dahmer case back in the day, right? Like Jeffrey Dahmer killed a lot of people, right? Or, these like, are all the people he didn't eat. Right? <laughs> hey, 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 here's 20 people he didn't eat. Now, now it's even, you know, now, now he's innocent now because he didn't eat these people. No. That's not how this works. So I've spent, okay, so num number one, right? I is it strange that Deshaun Watson received 40 massages? Maybe not, maybe not. He's a, he's a high level athlete. 40 different masseuses, yes, strange. I will go on the record as saying that that's strange. Does it mean that Deshaun Watson committed some type of crime or some, some civil assault? I have no idea, but I know that my wife gets her nails done and she gets her hair done. She does a number of the different same things. same person. Does she use 40 different vendors for the same thing? Never. These are usually very personal relationships. Your masseuse, your dietitian, who, your, your barber. I know people, you know, the, who are very serious about changing barbers. Now, you talk about a masseuse as a professional athlete, again, a place where you expect most athletes want some level of consistency because they do want that level of, of um, confidentiality. I only work with you. You know me, you know how my body responds stuff. I don't have to keep explaining these things. So yes, it looks, it, it gives you these thoughts from both ways. Why do you have so many if this is the case? And then why would you have so many? Okay, now on that day, I, I think this is very important. The, the allegations from, from Busby's side, and we can talk about Busby, he's gonna be my number two strange thing. Because I can, I can go, Busby could be my number two through number 10 strange. Yeah, Busby's we'll got a two. lot. So, so on, on this, masseuse, uh, this massage level at a certain point, he, they're alleging that Deshaun was concerned about privacy issues and he was very careful about vetting them. So, again, and to, to your point, it's a fantastic point that you're making. In another life, Dave, you'd be a fantastic trial attorney, cross-examining <laughs> someone on the stand. But, like, 
It doesn't make sense that you get 40 different people if you're that concerned about safety or privacy, confidentiality. So it doesn't make sense on, on, on Harden's side to make that defense. So just, okay. So now people see that I'm not, I'm not picking on Rusty Harden. I'm not picking on Deshaun Watson. I think that Tony Busby as an attorney, and he's the, the uh, attorney for, tw- I believe at this, at this point, the number keeps changing every day, um, 21 women that have filed civil charges. Now, this is going to be the Tony Busby chapter. I'm only going to give you the top three things. We'll say the top number. Oh, I'm giving too many numbers. But look, we'll so slide the Tony Busby into one big number two. Tony Busby, fine. Number two. Tony Busby starts off his first, you know, announcement to the public. Hey, I'm going to file these cases. We're going to we're going to litigate litigate these cases. Uh, we just want you to read the complaints. We're not going to litigate this case in the press. Um, and that's it. Tony Busby makes that announcement on Instagram, which was odd. Um, odd until you find out that Tony Busby's uh, Twitter account is blocked and suspended at the Busby law firm. So maybe another red flag, a little interesting. I don't know why his account is suspended. Um, but then uh, you, you kind of go down the rabbit hole. Okay, Tony, we'll believe you. Uh, over that first week, he was posting on Instagram every single day, very much litigating the case in, in, on social media, which is a seemingly a white lie, if anything. And he goes, and, uh, and he caps off a week and he goes, and on Friday, I'm going to be giving a news conference. I'm going to publish it live on Facebook Live for all to see. And he goes at that news conference and he says, among a number of questionable things, um, I don't know who owns the Texans. I think it's uh, weird that, that people are saying I have a connection to the Texans. Um, they might live on my street, but I don't know even know who the owner is. Is it Cal? Is it Al? I'm not even sure. And then he goes, and on top of it, uh, Houston PD is investigating this. I've been in touch with Houston Police Department and uh, they have an open file. Okay. Uh, if we were on Twitter, Dave, I'd have some fun and I'd go. And the lie detector determined that all of those things were lies. Everything Absolutely. I just said was a lie because he's litigating the case in the press. Number two, he put out a billboard in 2014 for the, the Houston Texans to draft Johnny Manziel. And in that he goes, yeah, uh, the McNairs are my neighbors. So obviously he knows who they are. Obviously he lives in Houston. So he, being in Houston, he knows who owns the team or being a, a neighbor, a good old. And it's not it's person. not a distance like no. they are in eye shot. Like right. he could throw yeah. something from his yard and hit the right. ball. He's probably filed a noise complaint against the, against them at some point, as neighbors do. And then, on, and then they, the 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 one that is just so alarming, um, and that I, I don't know what to make of it, is uh, the fact that Houston Police Department called him out for lying and said we have no open incident report. We have we are not aware of any contact between Houston Police Department and Tony Busby. And then you know, Mr. Busby had to walk it back and say, well, I spoke to, I texted with some detective unofficially and you know his proof of that dave i don't know if you saw this i didn't i didn't poke as much fun as i should have but was a screenshot of a text with someone whose name was detective it wasn't it wasn't like you know dave david grubb it just said detective so that was his evidence to say oh well i it was uh, you know maybe a misunderstanding so this busby character is right out of central casting he is uh and I, i'll choose my words very carefully there are stereotypes about lawyers uh, and I, and I don't, I don't appreciate them. Uh, but there are lawyers that embody those stereotypes. The stereotypes exist for a reason. Uh, you call them ambulance chasers. You call them, you know, slimy, right? They're sweating slime, uh, and, and they're white lies. And you hate to say it, but that's what Tony Busby is making. He's really making the profession look bad. So, um, yeah, that's, I guess, number two, Dave, um, you want me to tell you number three? I, well, I mean, even look, before we even moved off of Busby, like it's the, the things where now, you know, he's alleging, well, part of the reason we don't want to deal with the Houston Police Department is because they have a relationship with opposing counsel 
And so we can't really trust them. So now instead of convening a grand jury, which is what he wanted at first, he said, instead of we're going to just do it over here on the private side and we'll assemble our own evidence and then we'll turn it over to the HPD. We're not going to work with them. That's another red flag to me. I, I don't I don't know how people how I can make this point clear. What Tony Busby doing is, is doing, it's not just odd, it's not just strange, it is very harmful to his clients' cases. Um, this is a case, and I guess this is this will get us to point number three. Um, this is a case, uh, and this is this is the important one. If you want to take one thing away, then I'm about to tell you. Uh, OJ Simpson had a civil case and he had a criminal case. The criminal case goes on this burden that's called beyond a reasonable doubt. And that means uh, if you're, you're a sports fan and you're someone that just likes numbers, you got to prove someone's guilt. We'll make up a number, like 90%. It's not a real number, but 90, 85. Or you can say it's like 95. a pass interference call. It ain't getting overturned unless you got clear, you know, right. evidence. You got you to gotta be pretty, pretty confident that, that this thing occurred. You got to be pretty rock solid that it occurred. So – Civil cases are, you know, it's like 51%. It's called the preponderance of the evidence. That's how OJ can win a criminal court and he can lose in civil court because maybe they, maybe the criminal court said, hey, we think he's guilty about 75%, 72%, 69%, but not 90% because he could be put away for life. So that's, you it know, has that's, to be that's a how that could happen. Because we're talking about removing right. people from society. Right. On that and it's civil, right. And, and people's, God forbid, are the life sentences, death sentences. But in civil courts, 51%. It's just about money at the end of the day. So that's how the OJ thing happened. Now, if you are going to be, and then I guess number three is also a Tony Busbyism. As I say in my podcast, I call these Busbyisms. And then sometimes if I'm really angry at Tony Busby, I just say buzz and then I use a bumblebee emoji and I just call him Buzz B. Because I don't like this guy, Tony Busby. I don't, I don't like him at all. Um, and I, I don't like him, not because he's defending the victims. I, I'm very no. admirable, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I, 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 I don't like him because he's not doing anyone any favors because if he's defending the victims, right. And he said, uh, you know, and I guess this is, this is more of the, the substance of, of uh, the weird thing is that you have a, a lawyer who's not really acting in the best interest of his clients. He's saying he can't take this to the Houston police department. Why Dave? Because you hit on it, right? Because he ran for mayor in 2019 of Houston and lost. And as one of his platforms of running for mayor, he bashed the hell out of the, the police chief. And he told the police chief to step down. So, oh, shocking, shocking, Tony, that the Houston Police Department would hate you because you were calling for their boss's job. And Tony, I've only really known you for three weeks and I hate you. Imagine if you called for my boss's job. I'd double, triple, quadruple dog hate you. So, um, you know, now he now he's basically saying that the case is tainted and I can't give it to Houston PD. So I got to figure out what to do with these things. Meanwhile, he's going and telling everybody, hey, this case isn't about the money. It's not about the money. You know, my clients aren't about the money. Guess what? It's fine for your clients to be about the money. It's not that big of a deal. That's why it's the civil, civil case. Exists. Yeah, it's, it's fine. So he's basically cheapening his client's case at every single avenue. And then beyond. And guess what, Dave? You file a civil case. You're asking for money. It's about money at a certain point. And it's OK to be about money. If you were harmed, allegedly, these things happened. You were entitled to money. Like, so, so don't 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 question our intelligence as the, as the public. And then, uh, you know, I don't know what Tony Busby is going to do, but. The right thing to do with these cases, and I'm and I'm saying this just as a as a lawyer, is remove the cases of the stench of Tony Busby. Get these to a criminal criminal prosecutor, and if they want to take the case, guess what happens? They 
it goes to the criminal court and the civil cases stay. The civil case doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't occur anymore. It's, it's frozen in time and it goes to the DA's office. And then that will, that will enlighten the NFL if they should suspend the guy or not, because the only way the DA's office takes the case is if they feel that they can get right that clear and convincing evidence, like you said, for a pass interference call or that 90% conviction rate, like OJ levels of conviction. We've got to get mm-hmm. OJ guilty, right? And, Especially um, when I, you're dealing with the Deshaun Watson level case. This is right. not one that attention. you can... Yeah. And I guess the, to put a pin on my, my third point, why I am so aggrieved at, at Tony Busby, he has muddied the waters in the state of Houston because people don't know what to trust and what not to trust. And a case that comes down to credibility, right? What happened behind closed doors at this massage, right? Was it consensual, not consensual? You can't have your lawyer being called a liar. And he's attached to all 20 of, 21 of these women at this point. And now the criminal DA's office might not take the case because they don't feel confident that that public sentiment is going to be on their side when they pick a jury at some point in time. So, yeah, I, I think if I, I'd like Watson to, to get off if he's innocent. I wouldn't want Watson to get off because of Tony Busby. I, I right. don't think that's fair to, to anyone involved. Yeah, and I think that's the, the part that we I want to make sure we emphasize is that we're not making light of this of the actions if they are true. If there is a real sexual assault, if there are a number of sexual assaults that have occurred, that's not something to, to joke about. But what we're, what we're saying is the absurdity of how some of these things have been handled and the damage to the credibility of these alleged victims if, they, if, if this is true. It, like you said, the service is supposed to be to justice, not to Tony Busby, not to his reputation, not to his ego. Um, and, and as you said, there is, when you lie to people, when you don't have to, like the Houston Police Department statement, unless you have the sheet that says, you know, unless you've got something from the, the, the department that says we have an active investigation, unless they're willing to go out and make that press conference for you and say, we've opened an active investigation into Deshaun Watson. Why? And again, like, all these things, you are damaging this case that you say is so important to you. And like you said, damages are, I've been on the side of it where I've had to ask for damages for something. And my attorney, the first, you don't feel guilty. You got hurt. This is what you have to ask for. We're going to negotiate this. This is what you ask for. So yeah, to play this thing and, and tell the public it's not about money when that's all you can get in this if you're going through a civil case is to get financial recomp- uh, recompense. I just don't understand it. I hope that justice comes out but it seems as if, as if it's impossible and it's all on Tony Busby at this point. The one uh, nugget that we should just mention for those that are following the news closely, I know Dave, you and I are on the beat. Uh, we had a story from Sports Illustrated this week that a, a woman came forward. Um, she has a pseudonym as a fake name, but basically said she had a bad experience with Sean Watson. It wasn't the same. Uh, and she's not saying it under oath because she hasn't filed a lawsuit or anything like that but that she had a bad experience with, with Deshaun. Uh, she's not sure if she's going to file a lawsuit, but was approached by Tony Busby's law firm. And basically she felt uncomfortable signing with him. So this is a woman that is now independent, independent of Tony Busby. And is saying, hey, there might be some truth to these allegations that these other women are following. I didn't have that bad of an experience, but I did have a strange experience. And, uh, you know, so they're, you know, if you're Deshaun Watson, that's not good because mm-hmm. it's now someone coming forward that's, um, that's separate from the, uh, the stench of Tony Busby. Um, yeah, something to keep on the radar. Man, it's going to be incredibly busy for you. Uh, the next, it's, it's always busy for you right now, it just seems. Um, every week I see you doing so much and speaking so many places, but I appreciate you taking some of your time out to talk to my audience again. Um, and, and I appreciate every time you do because I learn and, and I enjoy, I just, I, I just enjoy the conversation too. 
Yes, Dave, busy is good. And I, I love coming on with you to do a long term. I do these radio hits that are like sometimes 10 minutes and I can only fit so much in. Um, but yeah, I, I love coming on with you and, uh, and breaking it down. So tell the folks what you do have coming up um, when the next episode, you have your current episode up of Conduct Detrimental, which I have to check out now um, after you teased it a little bit. But go ahead and, and sell that one again and, and tell the folks what else you got coming up. So the Conduct Detrimental Sports Law Podcast, uh, we, we uh, you know, both topics that we've hit on today, uh, Watson and uh, NCAA versus Austin, name, image, and likeness, those are hitting those pretty hard and heavy. Uh, we, we did a surprise episode last week, David, and um, maybe you'll have me on to talk about another time, but we did a free Britney episode. People love Britney Spears. They do. People love Britney Spears they in do. Louisiana, too. They do. So, um, so uh, yeah, we, we cover all things sports law, and I work in the sports and entertainment realm, so sometimes we sneak that in. I snuck in a little bit, Dave, on the last episode about those uh, little Nas X satanic shoes, that lawsuit with Nike. Uh, so the blood Air Maxes, the Satan Air the Maxes. Blood, the blood Air Maxes. So I did a tweet, uh, which I was very proud of. Score one for, Ni- one for Nike, zero for Satan. So Nike's winning that lawsuit. Um, but yeah, Are we, we cover sure? All things that- Are we sure Nike and Satan? <laughs> Nike and Satan, could, that could be the Spider-Man. Are we sure they're not? each other. <laughs> Spider-Man, Jeff, to point at each other. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, so Conduct Detrimental Sports Law Podcast. I'm uh, on social media at Sports Law Lust. Uh, next week, uh, I have two. I'm speaking at Sports Law Symposiums, which is a fancy way of saying like a uh, like these big events that these sports law societies put on. Um, I'm speaking at Cardozo Law School and New York Law School on April 6th, April 7th. I'll, I'll tweet out the links. I spoke at University of Florida uh, this past week, UPenn this past week. People want to talk to me, Dave. They don't know that I'm a a wrestling fan and a degenerate gambler. They don't know that part. Hopefully they don't listen to this podcast. Look, hey, all it is is more opportunities, man. You bring it to the people. And I think the best part of this is that not only are we seeing more people interested in sports law um, as a career, but I think we're also seeing more people taking an an interest in it to understand the business of sport better and how these things intersect. And I think that, you know, it... I, I enjoy that I get to be a part of it at this time and that we've gotten to meet because I've gotten so much out of it. And I just think that, man, you do a fantastic job of this. And there's a reason why you're in demand. Well, I, I love coming on with you, Dave. And uh, I, I don't forget my roots. You, you, had, you called me before I was doing all this stuff. So I am super, <laughs> super appreciative. Uh, and I am to you as well. So again, thank you. Uh, that is Dan Lust and from the Conduct Detrimental Podcast and Sports Law Lust on um, social media. Of course, y'all know how to follow me at DM Grub on Instagram and Twitter and the website HITPWithDG.com. That'll do it for this episode. Y'all have a great Easter weekend and I'll be back next week with more Hard to Pay.